We again this morning take a look at the Gospel of John and a um, another rather large section, but it's I think it needs to be handled in one setting, at least read in one setting, uh, to get the um, the flow and the impact of the story of one that is pretty familiar to all of us. But again, I pray that our familiarity uh, does not keep us from hearing something new or something deeper about Christ and about ourselves as we follow this story of John. And remember, John is um, writing to us in this gospel, coming to the close of the first half of this book of verse, chapters 1 through 12, the book of signs. And we know that Jesus did many more miracles in this, but this is not a book about miracles. This is a book about signs. It's a difference. Signs point Signs point to something and some or someone, and these miracles or signs that Jesus is doing, its effect is supposed to point us to Jesus, as the entire scripture is supposed to do. But John has these, in effect, as we see this progressive revelation, this progressive unfolding of who Jesus is, and John does it in, in a very peculiar and a very particular way versus the other three are called synoptic gospels. Um, the uh, chapter we're looking at is chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Now a certain man was ill, and Lazarus of, of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Mar Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after he, this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in a day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in a night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let's, let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to the, his fellow disciples, Let us go, that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found, found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would have not died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. God said to her, your brother will rise again. Uh, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When Jesus who, uh, when, when the Jews, excuse me, when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. 
Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and Jesus who had come with her also weeping, excuse me, Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of, the, of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to, to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him, to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and for these words and ask you again, as always, to bless these words to you as be glorified by the reading of your word this morning, but also, Father, as we ponder them and as we uh, read them and I digest them and think about them, Lord, that we realize again that we are holding in our hands your very word to us, that these are not just, a, this is not a book about a story and just a, a heroic figure, but this is about you, Jesus, who is our Lord and our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend. And we pray, Father, that as all those terms that have been mentioned, that we would have clear definitions of what they all mean biblically. Because, Lord, there are many people who call you Lord and call you friend and call you Savior, and yet do not even know what they mean. Father, I pray that you again allow us this morning to come to a greater understanding of who you are in our lives individually. That, Lord, we all go through this gate of death, and we all go individually. And so, Lord, you are going to speak to us on that day individually. And so, Lord, I pray that you will be with those who have come here today to speak to them, to me, to all of us, so that, Lord, your way would be done within us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We see that Jesus departed the area after the, uh, after the uh, different festivals and feasts that he had uh, fulfilled in their hearing about being the light through the Feast of Dedication and the Feast of Tabernacles, which we looked last week was the Feast of Dedication or, or Hanukkah, and actually Jesus fulfilled all of that as well, even though it wasn't a biblical holiday, so to speak, or a biblical festival, Jesus, even though uh, from a historical perspective, filled it and fulfilled it religiously of that he is the one, as it says here, the Feast of Dedication. And remember, the dedicating, the rededicating of uh, our anniversary of the remembrance of rededicating the temple site uh, after it being defiled by uh, the, uh, uh, the Syrians of Antiochus Epiphanes we talked about last week of the, uh, the, the Maccabean Revolution and uh, the revolt. And so they instituted a day to remember, and it was about the day they remembered with joy, with lights and festivity, the day of rededicating it back to the Lord. And Jesus is really the one who fulfills all that. It's not Jesus the one who has totally been dedicated to the Lord and has been sent by the Father and is the one who not only purifies things but purifies really us. Uh, that's the key here. Jesus comes to sanctify us and to purify us from unrighteousness, first from our sin and then our, our ungodly life. 
So we see how Jesus fulfills all of these different markers on the calendar that the Jews held so highly for. Jesus came and fulfilled all of them, showing that everything that has been talked about throughout history is all pointed to me in this day. And we saw that Jesus kept on saying, I can lay my life down and I can bring it back up again. And, and he was saying, it's not my time, it's not my time, it's not my time. And so we see Jesus here at the Feast of Dedication in December. Uh, he 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 took off and he says in verse 40 of chapter 10, uh, he went away across the Jordan, and that's where John had been baptizing, John the Baptist. And um, uh, we now see that uh, a time had gone by, maybe a couple more mo couple months, because now we're, uh, if we look at this time frame, is that this, this time frame, this is the very last time that Jesus is going to come down to Jerusalem because he's coming up to the Passover, and that's we know is the time. We know that that's the hour. We know that Jesus was not going to die on any one of those occasions because Jesus was in complete control of everything that was going on. And so we see that he took off and went someplace to get away from the, the tension and those who were ready to kill him for everything that he had been doing. And now uh, this cry comes from somebody that he loves, this family from Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, very... Uh, we can't help but read the language here about how he loved them. They were really close friends. Uh, they were, uh, uh, as, as John tells us and other people noticed, how they were loved. And also, we see that how these were loved by other people because it says here, and, and not in the, the usual pejorative way when it says the Jews. Remember we talked about when it said the Jews, it was usually those people that were coming after, the, after Jesus. <laughs> Here we see the Jews actually following them, coming from Jerusalem, which was uh, uh, from to Bethany, and this is where they lived a couple miles east. Well, if you're looking this way, east of, uh, uh, of the temple site and of Jerusalem. There was two miles away, and that's where Jesus came. And we see that Jesus at great risk is coming down. We can hear the tone of the voice of the disciples. Uh, but Jesus loved them, and... Uh, and wanted to go to hear their cry and wanted to minister to them. But the fact is that Jesus didn't say, oh, wow, I, this is a great opportunity. Jesus is very much in control of all this as well. Jesus goes as this family to Bethany, as it says, to the village of Mary and, and uh, Mary Martha. And it says here, notice in verse 2, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, it's, it's, it's kind of funny or kind of remarkable that in this gospel, we haven't read anything about this yet, but you see, you go to next week, or chap, not next week, but chapter 12, there's another message between uh, chapter 12. But if you see verse chapter 12, Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. What John is doing is John is actually pulling back something that happened in the future and he's pulling it back now because he wants people to understand that when they get to chapter 12 and when they get to that point about her anointing, they're going to have a lens to define what he, she did for him. But yet it is so important, again, he wanted to have a marker for them to understand that this is who she was and this family was and how special he was. But again, it's not only about that relationship, it's always pointing about Jesus and pointing to the point of why he came here. And so why Mary anoints Jesus, we're going to learn about. And we learned about him anoints her because of his death and about anointing him for, for burial. And this is John, again, is in a site of a funeral and a site of a death and site of a loss of a loved one, but yet a very much bigger picture. Remember what this is all about. Remember the prologue. It's about God being glorified. That's what this is all about. It's about Jesus receiving the glory and the glory from, the, from Jesus to the Father. We see, he says, so you may understand and come to see the glory of him, John writes in the prologue. And so he says, so the sisters sent to him, meaning that they knew where Jesus was. Now, they may have had some inside scoop. He may have kept in contact with them. They may have been on you know, Instagram or Twitter or something. But they must have been somehow get together to be able to get in contact with Jesus. And they sent for him. And they said, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. And he understood who he was. It was Jesus had that love. And, you know, John uses that term, the one, the beloved disciple of Jesus. He has that term. I mean, these, this John and these folks are the only ones that seem in this 
context to be able to have that kind of relationship with Jesus. But when Jesus heard this, he said to them, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now remember, this is the seventh sign. He's done many signs and many miracles, but John has picked this perfect number seven for us, and this is the greatest and the most, uh, the highest and the pinnacle of all the signs of bringing Lazarus from the dead because it underlines Jesus' entire ministry and who he, who he is, who he has the power to be. He has dominion over everything and over everyone, and so he now has dominion over death. We see this progressive revelation of Jesus. If we, you know, if we go back and we take a look at all the different uh, signs and, uh, that happened, we see in chapter 2 was the water turning to wine. I got it all listed in my back of my, uh, my, uh, uh, the chapter of all the different signs. Um, the water going to wine in chapter 2, the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4, the healing of the lame man in, chap lame man in chapter 5, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, the walking on the water, chapter 6 again, the healing of the blind man in chapter 9, and number 7 is this, chapter 11 is this raising Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus then again says, this is all happening. Remember the blind man in chapter 9? He goes, nobody sinned. It wasn't him. It wasn't his parents. It was, it was for this reason that this man was born blind, that God would be glorified through this, and I would be glorified through this. And this is what he says here. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through this event. And now Jesus loved, again, we hear that term, Jesus loved these people. So it's very important now to understand what comes next. It says here, now Jesus loved Mary and her sister, Mary and Martha, and Lazarus. By saying that, notice the very next word, so, or therefore. Jesus loved them so much that he stayed away. <laughs> he stayed away for two days. He loved them so much. He loved them so much that he stayed away two more days. Now, isn't that mind-boggling? Jim, your son needs help. Your wife needs help. Ah, I love him so much, let him sit there for a while. You would think he would get on, you know, he'd get on a horse and... Wherever he was, how far away he was, some people had speculation of where he was, and it's not important. But he was somewhere a, a distance, and also we know we're in, in, the, in the other side of the Jordan where Jews wouldn't go ordinarily. So Jesus was, uh, you know, the, the, the Jews, the one, the, the, royal, uh, the royal police of the, of, the, of the Jews would come, and they would never step over on the other side of the Jordan. So that's where Jesus was for safety. But he came. But he didn't come when he was called. He, he said, you know, it says right here, he's ill. And so they said when he heard that he was, when Lazarus was ill, he stayed away two days longer to the place where he was. Now we see that Jesus loves them so much that he hesitates or he waits. Boy, I'll tell you, that doesn't, in my mind, now I've got, God's done a great work in my heart. That I can understand that why God waits. But for people who are reading this and don't have the eyes of faith, this looks like a pretty rotten character, doesn't it? Well, how does God bring, you know, has a person, person born blind? How is that good so he can become uh, glorified someday? You know, I mean, he can be uh, given his sight back to glorify God someday in the future. All the misery that that guy had to endure all those years, what a cruel thing that this God would do to this man. Now, you and I can understand how people process that. And we can't get angry with them because I totally understand. I mean, for me to think about Jesus holding back for two days because he really want Lazarus dead. Now, we need to understand that, boy, this is a, this is a time... When we understand that God has done that in our life and God has caused us to wait for things to take place in our life or it happens to the things in our family, to the people that we love, and not on our time but on God's time, and we see it that he may have has answered prayer or he's done something, but it seemed like there was so much pain and so much anguish and so much sadness up until that time. Why did he wait? 
And we have that thing going on in our hearts and our minds, which is called a theodicy. Remember we talked about that a while ago. This theodicy, is God good? Is he fair? Is he good? This battle that goes on within us. Now turn with me to Romans. Keep your finger there in John chapter 11. But turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 8. And I gave you a message, one of my very first messages, and I'm sure you all remember it. <laughs> was John, was like Romans chapter 8. Verse 27, he who searches the heart to know what is, in the, is, is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who God loved, who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, God's purpose, the glory of God. For those whom he foreknew, this intimate relationship now, this isn't just, oh, wow, as I said last week, this knowledge of, oh, wow, I know you. No, really knowing somebody, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that, that's that purpose clause, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he justified, and those he justified he glorified. That's how much he loves us, is that he has this total plan of salvation before we were ever born. He's called us, and he started a great work in us, and he's going to see it to the very end until we see him glorified. And that's how much God loves us. This is this great story of love. That everything that happens in this world, everything that happens in our life, is in God's hand. And for those who love him, it's all for our good. That's, as I said back then, that's a leap of faith. That's, a, that's an understanding of like, wow, God's in control of all this stuff going on. I mean, you and I, again, since probably, you know, last time I gave this over a year ago, all the things that have happened in your life or happened in the world that just does not make any sense. You know, hundreds of thousands of people dying in a tsunami or in any, you know, any kind of travesty or any kind of tragedy that can happen. We see that God's in control over this stuff and we scratch our head and it just doesn't make sense. But it says that God is in control of it all. And when it goes on in your life and my life and we're supposed to be children of, of the living God and we're in this covenant relationship with God and God's, Jesus is our friend and Jesus is our Savior and all this stuff happens to us. We just, and all the, they're terrible things that go on in life, but God deems them good because they're good use for us growing in our sanctification and him bringing him glory that through it all we maintain our faith even though these events are not good and God doesn't call them good the outcome is good God glorified and you and I God remains faithful and even though we are faithless as we read today God remains faithful because he can't disown us what a blessing to know that but then it goes on in these questions here, five questions. After we've read all this about the love of God and we've read this about how he's had this plan of salvation from the beginning to the end, stuff that's happened in the past to, and has them to the past before we ever knew it, before we were born, things that are going on in our present life and the glorification that was going to be ours that we're tasting but is not already ours yet. He says this, what then shall we say to these? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also be him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elected? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised from the dead? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? And now we have this very, that's the fourth question. Then there's a fifth question. It's a very long question. Because this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Because it is those times, as he says here, when there's tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, who is going to help us when we're finding ourselves wondering, is God good? If he loves me this much, maybe I don't want to be loved this much? And that's why this question is long, because he says, because this is where you and I have trouble, folks. 
is that we judge God on our own standard, know how much we are in the Bible and know how much we are in church and no matter how much of a great theologians and how many degrees we have, our heart still questions God's sovereignty and God's goodness sometime in our life. When we get into that foxhole, we just wonder. And this is where he says, here we got to trust. We see Jesus deliberately holding back. Now we're going to hear the anguish of the sisters. This is real anguish. This is real sadness. This is real mourning because you know what? Their brother's gone. And for all intents and purposes, I mean, Jesus isn't sitting back with a stick in his mouth with his feet up on the desk going, it's okay. It's all right. It's all good. Which I can't stand when people say that all the time. It's all good. It ain't all good. It's all good in God's time and God's understanding, but you don't know what you're talking about because that's not even part of your context. But Jesus is here sitting going, goes, this is, a, this is, he's setting up this great miracle, this great sign. And then he says, after two days, what does he say to them? He goes in verse 7, he goes, let's go to Judea again. Well, that's pretty, pretty risky, is it not? They're ready, gonna, ready to want to kill Jesus. So he's willing to go to someone who died. And remember, the reason why he's going to Jerusalem is what? To die. Again, the picture is pieces for these people. Jesus is progressively laying it out for them, and we can't fault these guys. And we can't fault these women, because you and I sometimes don't connect all the dots either. It's nice when it does happen. It's great when we can rejoice and we can sit back and we see this blessing that God gives us that even in our sadness and even in the, in the difficulties and the distress of our lives and the catastrophes of our lives and the losses of our lives, that we can sit back and, as I said, even in a fetal position, crying on the floor, we can still exhibit faith in who God is and who Jesus is in our life. And then after he said the disciples said to him, Rabbi, what are you, crazy? Don't go to town. It's like Bill Cosby. You ever hear those old cut, those old movie uh, stories? Bill Cosby going about, you know, Tonto and, and the Lone Ranger. Tonto, don't go to town by yourself. They're going to beat you. Or they're going to kill you. And I always think about this. This guy going, Jesus, what are you crazy? You lost your mind. The Jews are going to. They're ready to kill you. Just, just now they were ready to kill you. You want to go back there again? And Jesus says, Well, listen, you guys. He goes. He says, aren't there 12 hours in a day? He goes, everybody walks by the, in, in the day. They don't stumble because they see the light of this world, meaning that he's here to do a job. He's here for a mission. He's here to do the will of the Father. It's light time. Remember he says, do the work now because darkness is coming? He's talking about there's going to come a time when he's not, Jesus isn't going to do these signs anymore. But he says here, but you guys got to open your eyes up because if you're stumbling in darkness, the light really isn't in you. So wake up, he says. But if anyone, verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. A metaphor for, you know, for dying, really. He's died. But I go to awaken him. Now again, they don't understand the context. They don't understand the word sleep here. They think he's really sleeping, so it says, good, he needs his rest. Sleep is good. And he says, no, he tells him point blank, he goes, he doesn't even, you know, no one else knows this yet, but Lazarus is dead. He didn't get any news, he just knew that Lazarus was dead. And he did it, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Now, I don't think Jesus is heartless here. It's just the fact that Jesus is schooling them and is telling them and is progressively revealing himself to them in such a way saying, you guys, I'm, I'm just getting you ready for this, this the greatest sign you're going to see. That doesn't include me coming back from the dead. The sign that is pointing to who Jesus is. He says, so that you may believe. Isn't that what chapter 20, verse 31 says? I've written these things, not everything that he's done, but I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Son of God. That's what the whole reason for this book was written. And that's what Jesus is telling him. So Thomas says to his fellow disciples, now, he could say this in a brave way, and again, there's some things that are going to be said here that you may think how you've read it, and I've read it in the past, but I may, I may turn the 
kick the cart on you in a little bit on somehow we may read these things, depending upon how Jesus responds. Because there are some on one side, and the arguments are good. On one side, it's one response, and another way, it's another response. So I may have said how you think of Jesus in this story that you've become so loved with. But Jesus, Thomas says, he could say, let us go, right? Let us go with Jesus and let us die with him. Because you know what? Because they know when, when he goes to town, they're going to kill him. He's afraid they're going to kill him. Now, maybe bravery, but I'm looking at this and he's going, oh, let's go with him. We might as well realize we're all going to die. He's resigned himself to the fact that what's going to happen to him and his merry men are going to happen to us too. And we're all going to die in this mess. So that's what I think, I think Thomas says. I don't feel bravery here whatsoever. I just think it's a resignation. All right, Jesus, we, um, you know, we can't be without you. There's no better place but being near you. And if we're going to have to die, the best place is to be next to you when you're dying. So Jesus comes. He finds Lazarus has already been dead, uh, in, been in the tomb for four days. He's been in the tomb four days. There's some superstitious belief by the Jews and rabbinical writers that, that, the, that the soul of the person is hovering over the body and after, uh, up until three days. And after the third day, if the, if the body is not going to ever take back that spirit again, the spirit goes away. So that's why it may be that there's four days, because when the fourth day is over, they realize that if there's any chance that anybody is going to inhabit this body with the spirit coming back to this person again it's gone because according to the rabbinical teaching it only it's only three days so no no spirit would violate the rabbinical teaching so jesus played that card maybe and said we're waiting four days because you know what because if he did it within two days or if he did it within three days ah the rabbis are right he wasn't ready to be dead those spirit came back and inhabited them right so Jesus had to take all the cards off the table that these guys wanted to play because they had an ace in a hole with that one. But Jesus just took that card, ace card right out of their hand. He took it right out of their hand. And now Bethany was only a couple miles off. Again, John throws these little statements in there, doesn't he? It was, it was on the Sabbath. And he did this and he did that. And now we see, we're just telling you how close, how close Bethany is. Just two miles, not a long walk for people coming to go and want to kill Jesus. And many of the Jews had come. Now notice, the Jews had come they, out of respect, out of maybe they were a rich family, or maybe they just were people of, of some, uh, they all seemed to be well known because people from Jerusalem walked all the way to mourn with him. And now you've got to remember what mourning is here. Mourning is, there's seven or eight days of mourning. There was a, a, a whole procedure written out in the Talmud about how long you do the mourning and how you're supposed to mourn and that you buried the next, you buried the same day. You know, there wasn't bringing it to the undertaker. The undertaker didn't have a job back then. You know, I mean, you didn't go to somebody and just say, oh, wow, how good they look. You know, you just never look good. No, they didn't, people didn't look good dead. They were dead. They just wrapped them up in cloth and prepared them, no embalming, no nothing, because what does Mary say? It's going to smell, Jesus. It's going to stink. The body starts decomposing. And then in, in this time, what did they do? They, put, they had a, you know, a, a community burial site. They opened the, door, opened the roll of stone away. There were bodies in there. They went in after a while. After the body decomposed, they picked the bones up, put it in a box. And you would say, next. Right? The spot was empty for somebody else. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. Now we see some responses and some reactions. So when, Mary, when Martha had heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Before he even gets into Bethany, she meets him. And he meets him, and he sees, and Mary, but Mary stayed at home. Again, you can't read people. I've heard, I've read people and heard people read into this, and I'm not, you don't want to get, you know, you don't want to read into every little sentence here because we don't have enough information. Like some people saying, oh, Mary was so upset and she needed to be consoled. She was grief-stricken that she stayed home. People mourn differently. Yeah, I know people mourn differently, but I can't read that here. So G Mary, Martha runs to Jesus and says, what's run her heart? Lord, 
crying, weeping, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, this is a grieving person who is telling Jesus the truth, saying, Jesus, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. Now, there's a great amount of faith in here, but there's a great sense of frustration I hear as well. You know, Doc, if you didn't, you know, if you were here sooner, if the hospital got their, their uh, wire, didn't get their wires crossed, this man wouldn't have died. My father, my brother, my friend, this person, whatever, wouldn't have died. And there's a sense of frustration because they know that Jesus could have done this. They believe in who Jesus is. They've had an intimate relationship with Jesus and friendship. And so they come and blurt right out, Jesus, you should have been here. Why weren't you here? But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, this can mean a sense that, you know, you are who you are, and we've seen you do things. You can do something right now if you want to. Or it can mean that she was, you know, in their grief, you let your heart out, and then all of a sudden you kind of recourse back, and you say, well, I don't want to, you know, step on you. I don't want to be a reverent Jesus, and I know you're in control. So there's different ways of reading this. Jesus said to her, he says, your brother's going to rise again. And so she goes, yes, you know, and, and I can hear Martha here. You know, people are saying, you know, they're better off, right? Your people come, they're better off. Look at them, they're, they're at peace. You know, you know God loves them. And I'm not saying all those things are terrible, but you know what? The guy is dead. No matter what we say, no matter what, it just isn't going to bring this person back. So a part of me looks at Jesus holding back, and many people holding back for two, you know, two more days and realizing that these women are really anguishing at a cost. Jesus held back for two days. I mean, he really loved them. He so loved them. They were close friends. They were buds. He just loved them so much that he held back for two days. And he's watching these women cry and suffer for the loss. They don't know what's coming. He knows what's coming. They don't know what's coming. And so he can say to them, your brother's going to rise again. But for them, it's over. They're grieving. And Jesus said to her, well, he says, I know my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's saying, I know when the Messiah comes, or I know when that day comes, we're all going to be raised from the dead. But you know what, Jesus? My brother's gone now. Who's going who's to fill my brother's place? You know, I mean, you can understand that loss. I always tell people, God doesn't replace that person. God helps you through that loss. But God doesn't replace that person. That's a loss. There's a hole in, this per in your life. And so she goes, yes, Jesus, I know, I know. You, I, I understand. Or she could say with a matter of faith, yes, Jesus, I know. I mean, she could have a great confession. I know that he's going to come back at the resurrection of the life. And Jesus says to her, but you don't need to wait because he says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Jesus is saying, you don't need to wait. It's happening right now. Look at me. I am the one who is going to bring the resurrection. I am it. And I am the life, that eternal life, that abundant life. Remember all these progressive times when Jesus has been talking about life? He is now adding something else. He goes, it's all embodied in me. Jesus is everything that we long for, everything that we want. Everything that Jesus, Paul writes, is yes and amen and all the promises of God. Jesus says, I am it. I am the embodiment of the kingdom. I am the embodiment of Israel. I am embodiment of the gospel. I'm everything. And this is what he is saying to her. I am the resurrection. In me is what you're going to have eternal life. Now, he says, remember, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet they shall live. Now, what, and again, remember, Jesus has been talking about death. We've been looking about death, people who have life and people who have death, people who have passed from death to life, people who are condemned are judged to hell and judged to death and judged to being apart from God, and those who are alive live, and those who die don't really die, but go from, don't ever die, but just go from this world to eternal life. And he says in verse 26, and whoever lives and believes, remember, a context of ongoing presence right now, whoever, everyone who lives in me and believes in me, in verse 26, shall never die. Well, what does death mean? Lazarus is dead. You have to go back to the beginning of the book. 
of the Bible, of Genesis. Because what happened in the garden? Now, you know, Adam and Eve, that you're not going to die if you eat this. Now, did Adam and Eve die after they ate? And the answer was no, but they spiritually died. This is what you've got to go back and understand with the lenses, that what is death he's talking about? He's not talking about physical death, because he said here, I'm going to awaken him. He's not talking about physical death here. He's talking about spiritual death. That's what real death is. When somebody, and I've mentioned before, when somebody lives in Jesus, they don't die. They continue to live in Jesus when they die. When people who die, they are dead and remain dead. And what does that death mean? That means a spiritual death. The death that they have been separated from God and God's wrath and God's anger is upon them because what happened to Adam and Eve? They were cast out of the kingdom. They were cast out of the garden. They couldn't come back in because God was judging them. But what had to happen? An animal had to die as a substitute for them. So we see what death is here, and that's what Jesus is talking about. He's been revealing himself. He's been talking about this. He's bringing into context the entire Old Testament and saying, I'm not talking about physical death here. And the worst problem for your brother is not physical death. And the worst problem for you is that that your brother didn't die. I'm here, and I'm bringing him life that you don't even understand yet. That's the good news. That's why I'm the resurrection and the life. And he says, you may die physically, but you're never really going to die. You're going to continue to live. And so she says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Is this a confession? It could be. But could she just say, yes, Jesus, I understand. Being polite. And she said, and then when she had said this, she went and got to Mary and says, in private, whether maybe to protect Jesus' privacy from the crowds or to have a special moment with Jesus by himself, Mary goes, Martha goes to Mary and says, the teacher is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, was in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with in the house thought that Mary was going to rise up and go to the tomb and suffer, because you know what? That's what the part of the pro- that's what part of the procedures were. You know, when people mourn, you mourn with them. And if you didn't have any mourners, you hired mourners. They were professional mourners. So there was wailing going on, they got paid by the hour to mourn. So you see this entourage of people getting up when Mary gets up because we're on cue. She's raised up. She's going to the tomb. Let's mourn. So there was no privacy. When the Jews were with her in the house consoling her, saw Mary rose up quickly, go out, and they follow her, supposing that she was going to the tomb. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus, and she fell on his feet, and what did she say? Jesus, if you were here, it would have never happened. <laughs> I've heard that before. She is talking. Is she just telling him what's on his heart? Jesus, why didn't you come? You could have been here. You could have changed everything. In verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now the words here, he was deeply moved means the word is used for a horse that snorts. A horse or the sound or the emotion of anger. Jesus was angry here. He was angry. He snorted. Now, and it says that he um, was greatly troubled. And the word here is, you know, when it says the pool was, was stirred this is what his, his heart, his inside, was troubled and shaken. Now, these are powerful words speaking about Jesus. But he was angered and troubled by what? That's the, I got a big by what next to that in my Bible. What was he doing? Now, you can say that Jesus was troubled by. Because he's, as, as the writer of Hebrews says, what do we have? A high priest that he was not unsympathetic to our woes and and our pain and our suffering and our loss. We have a Jesus, a high priest, who understands and empathizes with us and comes along and comes alongside of us in our sadness and in our tears. And I can see, you know when you cry, you snort sometimes? 
you just comes right out of your head and you weep that that may be his sign of emotion and that his heart was angry, that his heart was troubled what by seeing that it wasn't that he knew everything was going to happen but that he was troubled by the loss of this friend and their loss of watching these two sisters crying and people weeping and suffering. And this whole context is about death and it brought him great emotion. In that he was angered at sin. He was angered at the cost of sin. He was angered at the results of sin. He was angered what sin does to people. He could have been angered by that. And that's what most people, lots of people say. But some other people say something different. Because what happens in verse 38, he says, Then Jesus was deeply moved again. When was he deeply moved? Look at verse 37. Jesus wept, and they said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he open the eyes of the blind, this man? Couldn't he have opened, kept this man from dying? Now Jesus could have been angered at the lack of faith of both Mary and Martha and of the people. They are responding to who Jesus is. And Jesus is saying, I've been revealing myself this entire time of who I am, and you still show unbelief. And who is going to be greatly upset at unbelief than God himself and in his people? And so here he was angered at the effect that the whole time of saying that he was mad because what he's saying, he was deeply moved again by this. Was he saddened by what these people were crying over or was he saddened by this lack of faith in who he is? I say both are possible. I'm not coming on one side or the other. I'm saying that both are possible. Changes how you read this, doesn't it? We all want that Jesus that's weeping and crying alongside because that's the kind of Jesus we all want. But we don't, want it. We, we don't want a Jesus who's indignant about the lack of faith. So I see him being moved, but now Jesus, and this isn't about anybody. It's not about the mother, about the sisters. It's not about anybody else. This is about Jesus being glorified. And so Jesus loves them so much that he allows them and says, the cost of them losing their brother and the cost of them suffering and crying and grieving for two days is not worth it. It's not, it's, it's not, it doesn't compare to the glory that they're going to see from me. Boy, if that doesn't cause you to think about God's sovereignty and what God will do in our life. Lord, increase my faith. Right? That's what I pray. Lord, increase my faith because I'm on the edge. I feel like my heart's crying inside. I feel I don't know what's going on inside of me. So Jesus, takes, Jesus said to take away the stone and marry it. Now again, Martha, don't you think Jesus knows that when you take the stone away, that the body's going to decompose and there's going to be an odor? Why does Martha have to remind Jesus of this? Because she doesn't believe that Jesus is in control. Do you see why this, I mean, how I can understand that this is a lack of faith? That she's saying, Jesus... Now, that's somebody telling somebody already know. Now, don't do that. You know, don't do that. I mean, this person's an expert at what they do, and somebody who knows this much about it comes back, now, watch out. Don't touch that. I read. I spent the night in the hotel and the holiday in last night. He's saying here, she's saying to him, Jesus, he's going to smell. Jesus, that's right. He's dead. And now she says, she, so he goes, the odor, he's been dead for four days. And that's what John wanted everybody to know. There's no chance of this guy having any of this hocus pocus uh, rabbinical teaching going on about this spirit coming back. He's dead. If that spirit had a chance, they left town a day ago. So they took the stone away. Jesus lifted his eyes up to his father. And for the sake of the people around him, he goes, Father, I thank you that you heard me. Now, Jesus didn't say anything yet. Notice this in the past, you heard me, you heard me. Jesus has been praying for Lazarus a long time ago. It hasn't just something now. He's not praying, okay, God, do something now. This has been set up for all eternity. This has been a decree of God. This is in the sovereign plan of God. Lazarus was supposed to die. 
so that God could be glorified. And so he says, Lord, I'm thankful that you heard me. And I'm only talking to you now because these other people need to hear me talking to you, calling you Father. Know that I have come, that you've sent me, and I'm obedient, and what you want is what I want, and what I do is what you do. You see, that all ties in with the Gospel of John. And when he had said these things, he cried out, and he said, the Laz Lazarus come out. Now, some people think because there were other bodies in there that those other bodies would have come out. That's why he called them Lazarus. He only wanted Lazarus to come out. Because Jesus' voice, right, by the power of his word, can raise anybody or anything he wants. So he called Lazarus by name. Remember he said about the sheep? Remember he says all this? The intimate relationship that he had with you and me? And then the man who died... Lazarus, <laughs> his hands and feet bound with linen strips and face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus says, unbind him. Now notice the difference. This man had died, and he's going to die again. Now Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life. Jesus is showing them what? That he has the authority to lay down his life and the authority to take it up. He has the authority to take your life back up when you die. You see him having control over everything. But you notice the difference. When Jesus died and Jesus rose from the dead, he wasn't bound in clothes, was he? They were all nicely wrapped and put on a bench. And he didn't come out with his, you know, can you imagine this mummy coming out of this tomb? I mean, you want to get people's attention. You want to get people talking. That had to really floor people. I mean, he's walking. I mean, the poor guy's bound up. He's got his hand, you know, he's got his face bound up. They would bind up their jaw, they would cover their eyes with coins at times. They had, he had the death clothes on him, and he was dead. I mean, he was a human being. So this wasn't the death resurrection, but Jesus is saying, this is who I come. I have come to bring this person back to life, but you have to realize that he's still going to die, but he's not dead. Lazarus didn't die. He's never going to die. Because the death that I'm talking about is not the one that he just came out. It's the death that he had against his father when, when the federal parents of Adam and Eve, the federal headship of the father, I mean, came over and sin came upon all humanity and separated us from God, separated us from the father. And we all deserve what death? But Jesus says, he who believes in me is not condemned. He who believes in me will not be judged. He who believes in me, all those things that Jesus talked about in the Gospel of John is pointing to this day, saying, Lazarus' problem is not that death. Lazarus is alive because I'm going to die for him. That's what he's talking about here. So that resurrection that he did is a completely different one because Jesus doesn't have the grave clothes on when he raises from the dead. He is a glorified body. Lazarus doesn't. He's going to die a day. He's going to die, but he's never going to die to be condemned and to be judged again. And that's what I said when I talked at Mary Ann's funeral, and this is when I talk with people, that in Christ, we never die. Though our body dies, we're never, ever, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul writes. We're never going to have to face that death of God again because Jesus dies for it, and he raises us from it. That's what this is all about. And so you can see why Jesus could be upset because he has done these miracles. He has done these signs. I don't want to keep on saying miracles. He's done these signs. And they don't seem to get what death they're talking about here. But this is what Jesus is saying. I am the resurrection and the life. I embody life itself. And so Jesus is going to back to Jerusalem to die because he is, he's going to see Lazarus. But Lazarus is dead, but he's going back to take care of Lazarus because he's really going back to take care of his elect people. So that all of us who come to know Christ and have been come to, by God's grace, born in his family, he is going to be our resurrection and our life so that we never, ever have to worry about dying. And we need to see that we need to go back and interpret what's going on in the Old Testament to understand what Jesus is talking about. And you go back to Genesis and you see what death is, and that's a separation of God. And Paul writes through the entire book that we're no longer separated from God. The sins that God has, separ has separated us from God are gone, are dead in Christ. We are now dead to that. So he brings us life, and he brings us hope. So I look at this, and I'm saying this isn't about... Lazarus, this isn't about Mary, this isn't about Martha, it's about Jesus. Jesus being sovereignly in control of all things. Now, again, 
the good side of this, that Jesus weeps with us. Jesus is understanding. Jesus doesn't chastise them for being, for suffering and for crying and for grieving. But he can, on the other side, also be upset with unbelief when I think he has every right to be upset with unbelief. But ultimately, what does it tell us? It tells us, as we look at this, that this is the ultimate reason why Jesus came. This is about the body, the life, the death of Jesus, and how he promises by us eating these signs and symbols and seals are, is telling us that by eating and drinking, we understand the gospel. And we understand that it isn't about Jesus making our life livable here. It isn't about Jesus taking away problems in our life. It isn't about Jesus coming to our rescue when we want him to come to our rescue. He has told us that he has rescued us, as we have read today in Psalm 30, that he has rescued us from what? The pit. And that's what we need to be reminded of. Folks, I'm not trying to tell you, and he's not telling us either from the whole entire Bible, that we, don't, we grieve over our sin. We grieve over what's going on. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn over sin. We, it's going to be a way of life for us. But not to grieve that we lose hope. We grieve not like the unbelievers do. We grieve because we've lost someone, but ultimately in the end, if a person lives and believes in me, they'll never see death. That's our hope. And if we go back to that death in Genesis, we realize that when Adam and Eve sinned and they were cast out before, what did they do? He killed a life. He took a life to cover them for their nakedness. And that's the sign what? That's pointing to Jesus. What did he do? We are unclothed and unright. We are clothed in unrighteousness, and he clothes us with his righteousness. And someone had to die for you and me, and that's who Jesus is, and that's what that animal was in the book of Genesis. Why? Because it was talking about death. Because they didn't die, but they died spiritually to God. And that's the death that Jesus is talking about here. He wants us to get our eyes focused, not on the horizontal, but on the vertical. So, and we eat and drink. Is there any question of what the gospel is? Mm -hmm. After hearing the gospel today, and hearing John, and hearing the gospel of John, is there any question of what kind of death we're talking about here? Is there any question of that it costs someone their life? Is there any question of how Jesus loved us, how much he loves you and me? Oh, how he loves you and me. We sing that hymn. I mean, just think... He does love us that much. We have to have that problem. Thinking in our minds of what Romans tells us, that we got to make sure that if he didn't spare his son, that there's no one, no, nothing is going to separate us from that love. And in our lives, well, no matter what happens to us, we have got, we need the congregation, we need the church of, of Christ, we need each other to remind us, you need a pastor who's going to preach the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, who's going to bring all the all the connect all the dots for you from a perspective that the lenses be able to see how this is. This isn't a nice story about how Jesus cries when you're upset. He does, but that's not only it. You see how much more profound it is? You see when I cracked the nut open, all the meat rolled out? That's what we need to pray for, is that you have a chef come who's going to serve it, not like me but the way God wants it to be served. So we need to pray for that, but we need to pray that as you come and eat this, that you and I don't eat in a way that says, well, God really loved me. I must have been something good for me to be able to eat this. So when I walk out of here, I've done something that's a, a sacrament that's, that's going to make me better off with God. And boy, you better not eat and drink that because there's going to be judgment upon you if you, think, if you think that way. We only eat and drink because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, and the cost that he got. He went to a place of danger so that he could die on the cross, so that you and I could live. So let's pray together. Father, I ask your blessing upon us today as we gather for service, but now we gather for our time together. I pray for, for this uh, commemorating your, your Last Supper and our communion with you and each other, Lord. I pray that that we eat and drink this in a way that we understand, that we are called that if we believe in you and we live in you and we understand what death is all about and what sin is all about and what, how we need a gospel and how we need a savior and, 
and that we need someone to come in our life to, to intercede for us and mediate for us, then, Lord, I pray that we eat and drink this in a, in a way that it brings you glory. But, Lord, I pray for those who have never asked you to be a part of their life, to, for you to be their Lord, to be their Savior, to die for their sins, to come and to make them whole with you, to redeem them from the pit, to bring them to a perfect relationship with you, Father. I pray that they pray that today, that they would find themselves as sheep as you have designed them to be. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.